And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, also 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Susan Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. <laughs> yes. Today, huh, today is October the 28th, 2014. Oh, busy, busy. I managed to spill my water. Let's see if I can clean up my mess. Honestly, this is what we call free radio, folks. <laughs> Free to be a slob. Before I begin today's show, I just want to tell you about a book I found. Oh, look, a good book. When I got to the station an hour ago, I found a kind of miracle, magic, yes. Last night I couldn't sleep, and I was reading again some of the books uh, written by this author. Uh, my favorite is The Alphabet and the Goddess, and I thought... Yes, I thought, gee, uh, I got to use this on KPFA. And then today I got here and there's a new book written just before he died by uh, Leonard Schlein, spelled S-H-L-A-I-N. It's so hard, you know, on the radio to get these things straight. If you go to the bookstore, S-H-L-A-I-N, Leonard. And his book is... Leonardo's brain. They have a lot in common, those two. Anyway, uh, I think, you know, I think that I really have to take this home and just, you know, devour it before I uh, talk about it very much. What I do get just from looking at it is that this writer, uh, as he did in The Alphabet and the Goddess, he's got this synthesis. That's what I'm always seeking. Emily Dickinson said, my business is circumference. For me, it's synthesis. I think that today's writers need to connect the dots, put these things together, uh, the question is, which things we're all, yes, going crazy. I myself am, uh, what is that, roadkill on the information highway. Anyway, uh, yes, I have to look this over before uh, I tell you about it. But just in case you're one of those who has read uh, Leonard Schlein, 
His new book is Leonardo's Brain, Understanding Da Vinci's Creative Genius. It's a hardback in the stores now from Lions Press. Uh, let's see. Okay, yes. You might know his earlier books, Art and Physics, Sex, Time and Power, and, as I said, my favorite, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. That's a versus, V-E-R-S-U-S. Pardon me. I I am still trying to absorb and uh, understand that book. It's about the, the notion that literacy may not be all it's cracked up to be. Socrates felt the same way. Uh, anyway, I don't want to give you this blurb. That's not right. Uh, it does it does tell you that his fans are Al Gore, Norman Lear, all these folks, and that um, the author died in May of 2009 at the age of 71 from brain cancer shortly after the completion of this new book, the one on Da Vinci. And I find that uh, kind of heartbreaking. Hard to say why, but I... Uh, Yes, I do think that this is the sort of writer that, uh, what is it, makes me glad that I live in the 21st century, that I'm uh, on the crest of the wave, so to speak. Never mind. Uh, today, right, I had planned to uh, talk about Gertrude Stein because <laughs> she's a, a sort of thinker. Of a different sort. She's the one who wrote, If you are a thinker, you will change the language. You will not use words the way the others do. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Oh, gosh. What she used to do with things like uh, things. (laughs) Words like masterpiece. You remember her wonderful essay, What are masterpieces and why? Are there so few of them? <laughs> yes. Uh, this new book about da Vinci's answer to my prayer. Wrong word, wrong word. It's an answer to my hopes. I will stop talking about it because I don't really feel prepared. Uh, I'm going to take it home and uh, talk about it next week. Now, today, today. Is 28 October. Here comes Halloween. Here comes the election. Don't forget to vote next week. I <laughs> I was reading last week uh, one of those Berlin stories from Christopher Isherwood in which he described the neglect that his friends, uh, well, it was, you know, by election, between elections, and Hitler was on his way to power, and so many of his friends in Berlin didn't bother to vote because they didn't think... It was uh, important. You know how that goes. Uh, Midterm elections. Anyway, next Tuesday, I think I'll be on the air unless something very unusual happens. Uh, Usually KPFA coverage starts about 5 o'clock on election days. Uh, Anyway, Uh, another thing, I seem to be all... All menus today. I want to tell you about something because I think it's a, a 
one-time showing. Uh, it's a screen biography tomorrow. It's on BBC America. Uh, and you know how these screen biographies are. I, I don't know if there's anything accurate. But it's a take on the life of Dylan Thomas, the late, great Welsh poet. Now, Dylan Thomas was uh, probably, possibly, maybe the definitive romantic poet. That is to say, he tried to live the life that he wrote. Uh, you know how that is. This is like method acting. Uh, be the dream uh, get yourself killed anyway the self-destructive aspect of Dylan Thomas is uh, kind of scary but what matters is his work I uh, have a wonderful book that I haven't looked at for a while I think I'll look at it before the Dylan Thomas biography tomorrow night it's written by his wife Caitlin yes Caitlin Thomas what a fascinating woman that book is called Left Over Life to Kill and when I first read it years and years ago uh, when I was still fairly bland uh, uh, I was going to say innocent or unsophisticated and I have to admit that I was shocked what a what is it called what a primal woman she was uh but, you know, uh, <laughs> there's always a dialectic. There's always a yin and a yang and a yes and a no. Uh, Dylan Thomas pulled it off in spite of the alcoholism. That's all that matters. Uh, he is, yes, he belongs to the ages. He died in the 1950s. He was doing a tour in New York, performing, actually, and uh, apparently the Party time was uh, too overwhelming. Uh, I just remember that unforgettable voice. Uh, now, it doesn't always happen that great poets are great performers. There's always something, you know, uh, unique about the style of a poet. But they they may not be, uh, is it, they may not be, even intelligible, some of them, but uh, I always find something to listen for, maybe a subtext, uh, some clue to the psychology, even um, fears. Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay's readings are chilling for me. She, <laughs> she uh, dressed up in those floating green scarves. I... I uh, and just imagined her, uh, she wore those green scarves the first time she gave a public reading, or uh, one that was talked about. Uh, and the green scarves were given to her by her sponsor, uh, a woman who gave her, you know, money for college and all that good stuff. And I uh, guess her first grand appearance, she did the scarves because she didn't really have an expensive or uh, respectable dress. Her tremulous voice had this, has this underlying fierceness. It's quite scary. Uh, I stayed at her house once for a month back in the 80s, and uh, her ghost is everywhere. It's up 
upstate New York, their uh, writer's retreat. It's all dug up now. They they uh, just about to rip it up when I was back there. Her sister was still alive. Stop, Jennifer ceased. You're on a tangent. <laughs> Let's get to Gertrude Stein. When you listen to Gertrude on the uh, tapes, you know, there's just a few tapes of Gertrude Stein. I thought at first, well, she's a music teacher or a math teacher. I can hear the metronome. She's so, what's the word, uh, down to earth? No, 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 mathematical. Uh, compare her to someone like T.S. Eliot. He's just the blood of the lamb. He just floats, trembles, the pope of poetry he was. Anyway. Enough of that, enough of that. Uh, I just want to give you the times. Tomorrow evening on the BBC, it's BBC America, this biography of Dylan Thomas, uh, uh, the immortal Welsh poet who sang in his chains like the sea. My favorite of his narrative poems is Under Milk Wood, uh, back in 1950. 50s, it was a performance right here in town in Berkeley by a local actress. Mm, what's her name? Jackie? I've forgotten it. Oh, oh, oh a senior moment. Anyway, uh, we had a small theater. Uh, it was a group called the Berkeley Drama Guild. It was on the corner of Stewart and Shattuck, believe it or not. Uh, if you go there now, you will find a cafe called Sconehenge, as in S-C-O-N-E, Sconehenge, <laughs> yes. Ah, the Berkeley Drama Guild, we did, oh, I did maybe half a dozen plays. Uh, what I remember about that one was the music, would you believe, the immortal Barbara Dane, our own local uh, artist, that was the music. She did the music. There she was with her guitar, of all things. Uh, Barbara Dane is, of course, uh, a local treasure and a national treasure. Uh, Under Milkwood is available on tape. I'm sure you're going to hear it sometime or another soon because uh, it's uh, Dylan Thomas's 100th birthday. A uh, hundred years old. Hmm. Where will we all be uh, in a hundred years? Anyway, look around and find a tape of Under Milkwood if you're a school teacher. Uh, I like my tape of Richard Burton doing Under Milkwood. It's very special. Uh, now, once again, tomorrow evening, BBC America. If you don't know which channel BBC America is, call your cable company. Uh I think everybody who has just regular, regular local TV, uh, I have Comcast. It's on 810. That's the number on my, uh, uh, channel on my telly. It's an hour and a half. BBC, uh, tomorrow from 5 o'clock till 6.30 in the evening. And then it repeats 8.30 until 10 o'clock. That's both of those showings uh, are on uh, 810 BBC. There are two more um, 
on the channel 162. You can get it on 162 twice. 8 to 9.30, that's one, and then uh, 11.30 to 1 a.m. As I said, if you're really stuck, just call the cable company. They should learn to uh, help the listeners find these things. Uh, <laughs> now, I've been off the air so long, I've forgotten what I do around here. <laughs> I've been off for three Tuesdays, and uh, I just I just gave up and stopped thinking. I just curled up with Victorian novels. I just soak in all that narrative because reality no longer torments me. I I can't do anything. Uh, I'm always saying I have to find someone to tell them all the things that are wrong so they can do something. Mm. Anyway, lately a lot of folks tell me that uh, I am too negative, that I am on the dark side of the road, so... I'm going to really try to go in for the yin. Stay away from yang, you know. It's boring to be always going to hell in a handbasket saying, ain't it awful, you know. So, today is Gertrude Stein, my favorite fun lady. (laughs) She insisted on being happy. None of your feminine masochism uh, when she wrote poetry. She was dancing. Anyway, uh, she's the one who said that we are all a lost generation, but she didn't mean it the way uh, everyone heard it. Uh, She meant something entirely different. Uh, She said that a French innkeeper told her that the generation was lost because they were young men between 17 and 25, and they went off to war and they weren't... uh, close to the women, to their families, to the human things, and that's why they were lost. They, I guess she meant, lost their feminine side. Gertrude wrote, Why don't they read the way I write? (laughs) I don't know how I uh, fell in love with Gertrude Stein, but I got my uh, master's degree in Gertrude way back in the middle 70s. She just cheered me up no end. I didn't want to read any more uh, tragic women's stories. Uh, Here's an essay that I have from years ago uh, all about Gertrude. This essay's titled Genius is what happens when you're looking for a way out. Civilization, said Gertrude Stein, begins with a rose. If art is civilized magic, then the three roses of Gertrude Stein are the magical mystery of modern poetry. When Gertrude was lecturing at the University of Chicago, a young student in her seminar asked her for the meaning, the meaning of rose is a rose is a rose. Now, this was her answer. Hmm. Quote, it's a quote, yes. Now listen, can't you see that when the language was new, as it was with Chaucer and Homer, the poet could use the name of a thing And the thing was really there. He could say 
O moon, O sea, O love. And the moon and the sea and love were really there. And can't you see that after hundreds of years had gone by and thousands of poems had been written, he could call on those words and find that they were just worn-out literary words. The excitingness of pure being had withdrawn from them. They were just rather stale literary words. Now, the poet has to work in the excitingness of pure being. He has to get back that intensity into the language. We all know that it's hard to write poetry in a late age. We know that you have to put some strangeness as uh, something unexpected into the structure of the sentence in order to bring back vitality to the noun. Now, it's not enough to be bizarre. The strangeness in the sentence structure has to come from the poetic gift, too. That's why it's doubly hard to be a poet in a late age. Now, you all have seen hundreds of poems about roses, and you know in your bones that the rose is not there. Now, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that line because it's just one line in a longer poem, but I notice that you all know it. You make fun of it, but you know it. Now, listen, I'm no fool. I know that in daily life, we don't go around saying da-da-da-da, is a da-da-da-da, is a da-da-da-da. Yes, I'm no fool. But I think that in that line, the rose is read for the first time in English poetry for a hundred years. Now, that quote I got from uh, Thornton Wilder, his introduction to uh, his book, Four in America. He's writing about Gertrude. Uh, anyway, Stein goes on in that lecture to explain that the excitedness, excitedness of pure being is not the same thing as being excited. An artist, she says, must be exciting not excited. <laughs> like history, this takes time. <laughs> I was thinking the other day, when I was rereading my own essay here, that uh, the first time I realized some of what she's saying is the first time it was in a Greek play. Many, many... Uh, Years ago in college, I was in a Greek play. I think it was Trojan Women. I did several Greek plays. Uh, no, it was the one where I was Clytemnestra. Anyway, I realized that uh, even in English, even after all this time, what the playwright was doing was an incantation. It wasn't song exactly, but it was incantation. And I think um, it 
it comes through, I was thinking that Alice Toklas said that she uh, got it, understood Gertrude, because she typed the manuscripts. She, she went one word at a time. You have to read Gertrude Stein out loud. I persuaded some high school students to do this once, and they were quite surprised. I said, turn it into a play. Think of it as a play. We read Melantha out loud. And it was amazing the way, uh, the way the men talked and the way the women talked it was entirely different, you know. Uh, it was like uh, railroad tracks, you know, and you put the... Uh, two lines just running parallel but never meeting. That's what it was like. Uh, they didn't connect. Uh, anyway, one of the most common rebukes directed at Stein during her lifetime and even today is that she's precious. <laughs> that she indulged in art for art's sake. Now, I have to come right out and say that this is true, of course. There's never any question about that. Now, listen, I'm not stupid. I know that in daily life today, art for art's sake is verboten, especially when there's no money in it. The phrase is a curious one, art for art's sake. Think about it, think about it. Uh, Theophile Gautier, I can never pronounce that last name, Gautier, Theophile Gautier. In 19, no, 1834, he wrote a book called Art for Art's Sake. French, yes. He denounced any art that intended to be utilitarian, to draw a moral or serve any cause. Gautier wrote that anything useful is ugly because the useful expresses need and the needs of men he concluded, are disgusting. <laughs> well, I'm one of those <laughs> who thinks that Gertrude Stein uh, didn't find human needs disgusting. I imagine she believed artistic expression itself was a human need and she needed to think. She called her process conscious consciousness. Hmm. Somewhere else she writes that consciousness had replaced the soul. That's the 20th century, I guess. At the same time, she liked being the very human human being that her little dog knew. Art did not dehumanize her. She adored all the bourgeois comforts as well as the bohemian and even lesbian pleasures of living in Paris early in the 20th century. She was uh, very concerned about meeting all her own human needs, and she did not find them disgusting. She did distinguish between human nature and the human mind. Oh, that's the big one. That's the big one, folks. For Gertrude, this distinction was not the mind-body cross of modern despair. It was the release from biological definitions, the liberation from sex roles, the freeing of her mind from the prison of her body. Much as she loved Alice Toklas, 
Gertrude was first and foremost a Steinist, a narcissist in the sense that she was in love with her own reflective soul. She said that human nature is not the human mind because she wished to sort out her thoughts and distinguish them from her feelings. Now, as we know, this was probably a good idea at first, but today the intellectuals take it too far. This has been Jennifer Stone. I will be back on the air next Tuesday, unless the election goes wacko. Until then, uh, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The ones who walk in light, light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. KPFA is proud to be a media sponsor for the Green Festival, America's largest and longest-running sustainability and green living event. The Green Festival returns to Fort Mason in San Francisco, November 14th, 15th, and 16th, offering a wide selection of green products, family-friendly activities, inspirational speakers, cooking demos, live music, and more. Green Festival has been committed to helping people in America find solutions to make our families and communities healthier, socially, economically, and environmentally. Tickets on sale now at greenfestivals.org. KPFA listeners get 50% off admission by using the code KPFASF14. That's discount code KPFASF14. This event benefits Green Festival. Greenfestivals.org forward slash SF.